We are finishing the small book of Philemon today. It's been a few weeks uh, here looking at uh, this book and what Paul has to say uh, to us in this very personal uh, letter that he writes. So we're going to look at the last uh, uh, section of this book, uh, Philemon. It's right before the book of Hebrews. If you're looking for it, uh, you can turn there or read along in the bulletin insert. So listen carefully, Philemon, uh, starting at verse 17. And this is God's word. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ, confident of your obedience. I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me. For I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you as always for giving us the scriptures, for making us your people. You have brought us to this small a deeply personal book that speaks about reconciliation. And Lord, we come this morning realizing that we're sinners in need of forgiveness, debtors in need of a Redeemer, and we open your word to find the one who reconciles us to God. Help us to find him this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we just celebrated Thanksgiving, a day in which we're supposed to focus on being thankful people. You know the story of the very first Thanksgiving Day in the English colonies, right? The one where Captain John Woodleaf and those 38 colonists who had just arrived in Virginia from Berkeley, England, and set aside a day of giving thanks to God at the Berkeley Hundred, later named the Berkeley Plantation, on December 4th, 1619, where Captain John Woodleaf proclaimed, we ordain that the day of our ship's arrival at the place assigned for plantation in the land of Virginia shall be yearly and perpetually kept holy as a day of thanksgiving to Almighty God. Heard that story or not? Maybe you haven't heard that story. That's because those Johnny-come-lately pilgrims from Massachusetts arrived to Plymouth Rock with a publicist. So now everyone just knows the first Thanksgiving was in Massachusetts with the pilgrims after the whole colony almost froze to death following that first bitter winter in 1622. But the first Thanksgiving Day was in Virginia. Okay, actually the very first Thanksgiving Day in the New World was led by a Spanish explorer named Juan de Ononte held near El Paso, Texas in 1598. But that doesn't count because it was Texas. You know, they probably had like chili and burritos and guacamole or something. At any rate, the idea of Thanksgiving Day was not held as a perpetual celebration in either Massachusetts or Virginia, 
or Texas. Thanksgiving Day was never more than a local and a sporadic event until President Abraham Lincoln made it an annual holiday in October of 1863. Think of your history. It wasn't said as the fourth uh, Thursday in November until December of 1941 by President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, which means the first Thanksgiving taking the commonly accepted first Thanksgiving in Massachusetts, took place after a bitter winter arrival and almost destroyed the entire colony. Two-thirds of the arrivals died in the first year. The first National Thanksgiving Day as a holiday was observed during the tragedy of the Civil War that almost destroyed our nation. Thanksgiving was declared a national holiday by President Lincoln three months after the Battle of Gettysburg and one month before the Gettysburg Address. And it was set as the fourth Thursday in November, just days after the bombing of Pearl Harbor and the United States entrance into World War II. I think it's important for us to realize that Thanksgiving is normally set in the context of struggling and suffering. The idea of Thanksgiving was born out of a struggle and out of the awareness of God's goodness despite our difficulty and hardship. We still observe Thanksgiving Day, but it has very little to do with struggle. It has more to do with eating ourselves silly and then suffering and complaining about how stuffed we feel. And I find it ironic that the more and more we have for which to be thankful, the harder and harder it seems to be truly thankful. So the questions that come out of this are somewhat obvious. What are you thankful for? How are you showing it? And just what is this struggle that's supposed to be going on in your life? that produces thanksgiving. I think we can find some of the answers here in Paul's letter to Philemon, our text for today. As we learned last week, it's a true story about forgiveness and reconciliation between Onesimus, a slave, and Philemon, his master. Onesimus had sinned against Philemon, and Paul is writing, as it says back in verse 10, to appeal to Philemon for Onesimus. Now, the Apostle Paul makes reconciliation sound easy, but as we all know, it's really not easy. It takes selfless love on one hand, as we see with Philemon, and it takes a changed life on the other hand, as we see with Onesimus. But just listing what is necessary, just listing a change in character or new character qualities isn't enough. As you can imagine, asking Onesimus to return to his master had to have been a huge struggle for him. I can't begin to fathom how difficult that must have been. So we have to ask, how do you get from a broken relationship to a restored one? What's the process for reconciliation? That should be the first blank in your outline. 
the process for reconciliation. Starting at verse 17 through the first uh, half of verse 18. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything. That's what Paul's initially outlining here in these verses. He's giving us the components of forgiveness that demonstrate the process of reconciliation. And the first component is to affirm the unity that believers have in Christ. He says there in verse 17, So if you consider me your partner, Philemon, Paul, and now Onesimus have a partnership in Christ. And since we've been united in Christ, we must forgive. It's absurd for us who live in spiritual unity to live in relational disunity. So the first is to affirm the unity that we have. The second component of forgiveness is the act of reception. In verse 17, we read, to receive him as you would receive me. Embracing the person back into a reconciled relationship. You don't put them into relational time out to pay for what they've done. You receive them back into a reconciled relationship. And the third component of forgiveness is to acknowledge the sin that happened. Verse 18 says, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything. And Paul uses if here the same way he did in the previous verse. Implied in both statements is that the if is a reality. For real forgiveness to take place, you who have sinned must acknowledge your sin, admit your sin, confess your sin, and actually call it sin. It's not a mistake. It's not an accident. It's not an oversight. It's wrong. It's sin. And then the fourth component is the clincher. This is the one that makes forgiveness truly possible. This is what makes Christian forgiveness unique compared to any other kind of forgiveness. And this is the one that provides the motivation for reconciliation. Again, starting at verse 18, the motivation for reconciliation. <clears throat> Paul writes, If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. So the fourth component of forgiveness is to put the sin on the shoulders of one who has offered to bear it. Paul says, I'll take care of the bill, Philemon. I'll cover Onesimus' sin. The two of you just make sure you get things right. Receive him as a beloved brother. I'll pay the damages. Why on earth would Paul offer to do that? It wasn't his sin. Where would he get the idea that sometimes it's good for a third party to bear the effects of sin so that two other parties could be reunited in a loving, forgiven relationship? This is the gospel. This is what Christ has done for Paul. Jesus bore Paul's sins in his place so that he could be reconciled to God. And Paul is now in a place to embody the gospel for Philemon and Onesimus. You know you've come to truly understand the gospel, not merely when you believe it, but when you actually live it. Because Christians don't let bygones be bygones. We know of no water that goes under any bridge. We don't keep rugs in our houses under which to sweep sins because we have Jesus. 
He bore our sin on his shoulders. It's been paid for, done away with, taken care of. We are truly reconciled to one another when we put four hands on the sin. The two hands of the one who sinned, the two hands of the one who was sinned against. And together put the sin on Christ's shoulders who offered to bear it for us. And I've seen people in this church who've been grievously sinned against and have forgiven on the spot. Not without pain, not without feeling violated, not without being hurt. But what is it in the midst of hurt and pain and suffering that enables someone to forgive so naturally? It's when that person has been saturated with the gospel. They're amazed that God has forgiven them through Christ. How could they not forgive others? I've seen sin triangles where three people have been involved and gotten hurt. And where reconciliation runs down one side but not the other. Why not? Both parties were hurt. Because one side had the gospel as its basis for forgiveness, but the other didn't. Last Sunday I talked about splitting logs. And how splitting logs we have a picture of the effect of sin within personal relationships. And just like a wedge drives apart two halves uh, of the log, sin drives apart a friendship, a marriage uh, between family members as it works its way slowly but surely through the relationship. And is there hope? When your relationship is split and the two halves have tumbled to the ground, is there hope it can be brought back together? Splitting logs uses a small wedge, but some of you are dealing with big sins, big offenses, and you just want to let it go. And you've given up hope. But hope is still there, and hope is there because Jesus is our hope. Hope is there because Jesus has paid the price for every wedge of sin. Hope is there because Jesus is able to put completely split relationships back together, even if it feels as dry as dead, chopped up logs. He can plant you in the soil of the gospel of grace. He can nourish your once broken relationship with the Spirit so that you who are once angry and embittered and resentful can now bear the fruit of the Spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, and kindness in your relationship. But there is a responsibility on our part. We have to be reconciled. We have to forgive. We have to allow Christ to bear uh, the sin. And we have to change. And we have to selflessly love. And it may take a while to work through all the issues of sin that you have committed or have been committed against you. But work at it. Work at reconciliation. Work at it for as long as it takes. And when you do that, then soon you'll begin seeing the results of reconciliation. The results of reconciliation, starting at verse 20. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Paphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Now Paul mentions in passing several of the things Reverend Doris covered in detail for us two weeks ago. He mentions the benefits of fellowship, the result in refreshing each other. 
and specifically names some people who have refreshed him uh, with their company. He mentions the benefits of hospitality and prayer in verse 22 and talks about the various greetings uh, that are sent and the blessing of grace that's given to Philemon. But he says something very interesting in verse 21. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. That phrase really struck me. It just stopped me cold. Confident of your obedience. I wondered if anyone could write that to me. Confident of your obedience. Could anyone write that to you? It's a bold declaration of faith in how God is working in Philemon. So I've been thinking about that. I've been thinking about obedience. We can talk about obedience in lots of ways. I'm going to talk about it briefly in terms of stewardship. Are we obedient in how we give of our time? In other words, do we give our time to the church, to ministry, to being part of a parenting small group or the ladies' Bible study, to attending Sunday school or youth group, to serving on the music team or the finance committee because I'm interested in fellowship and community and relationship and service? All good things. Or is there some part of me that does these things because I want people to think well of me? Because I want people to know that I'm one of the committed ones. Because quite frankly, it makes me look good. It's easy, particularly when serving in the church, to do the right thing for the wrong reason. If you serve for selfish reasons, Paul's probably not writing this to you. Are we obedient in how we give of our talents? In other words, do we use our spiritual gifts? Because quite frankly, we've got a lot to offer. Perhaps I serve because you need me. Let's face it, I'm better at this than you are. And it doesn't matter if we're talking about teaching Sunday school or singing on stage or organizing events or preaching the gospel. We use our talents because it makes me feel good, because it makes me feel needed, because it feeds my ego. And if you're using your gifts and talents for me-centered pleasure, Paul's probably not writing this to you. Are we obedient in how we give of our treasure? In other words, do we write our checks to the church out of obligation? After all, everyone knows the church needs the money. Do we give reluctantly, knowing this check means we won't be getting that latest gadget? Or you already have the gadget. Okay, well, perhaps you don't understand when Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves the cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Is all grace abounding to you in your giving? You see, we can do the right things for the wrong reasons. And ultimately, our motivation for giving our time to ministry, for using our gifts and talents and service, for investing in the ministry of the church, ultimately is only because we've been deeply loved and totally forgiven and completely accepted and redeemed to the uttermost through the person and work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
Paul wants you to show up to serve and to give in order, as he says in verse 7, to refresh the hearts of the saints and to do these things because you're motivated by your love to serve Christ. To pick up again in 2 Corinthians, we read Paul telling the church that doing these things, serving and giving, will result in thanksgiving. 2 Corinthians 9, starting at verse 10, he says, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. It's not a prosperity gospel. It's not a health and wealth thing here. What gets increased is your righteousness. It says, You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. You give and serve because you're grateful to God for what he has done in your life through Jesus, and in so doing, investing your time, talent, and treasure, which overflows in thanksgiving to God. Obedience leads to thanksgiving. Doing the right thing for the right reason leads to thanksgiving. The grace of God changes your life. And the grace that flows out of your changed lives changes the lives of others. And in the end, everyone's thanking God for what grace does in our lives. You know, I started with Thanksgiving. I'm going to end with Thanksgiving. Just a few days ago, we celebrated Thanksgiving Day. And I love Thanksgiving. I love all the food. I love the turkey and the stuffing and the mashed potatoes and the stuffing and the green beans and the stuffing and the gravy on the stuffing. I love apple pie and ice cream for dessert. I love having cinnamon rolls in the morning and clam dip at night. And I love having the family over and I love watching the Patriots win. Again. This year, I asked everyone to share one person they were thankful for. All the married people said their spouse, which was very wise. <laughs> I asked everyone to share a group they were thankful for, and most shared too, family and a particular group of friends. I asked them to share something they did that they were thankful for, and again, most of those were relationally based. And finally, I asked them to share something they had that they were thankful for, and these range from computers to new jobs. It was all good. But I kept thinking about it for the next a couple of days. So here's a dozen random things that I'm thankful for. One, I'm thankful for a relationship with God through Christ. The mystery of God's love expressed in Jesus continues to amaze me. That he loved me enough to sacrifice his son purchase my redemption, satisfy his wrath, and display his glory. Awesome grace. I'm thankful for those who brought me this far in the Christian life, starting with Park Street Church in Boston, whose ministry helped bring me to Christ, including time spent with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship while in college in Vermont, with Campus Crusade for Christ while at American University in Washington, D.C., with Officers Christian Fellowship at Fort Jackson, South Carolina, Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, where I got my Master's of Divinity, and Covenant Theological Seminary, where I got my Doctor of Ministry. 
And I'm thankful for the church. I'm thankful for churches in Boston, Columbus, Georgia, Columbia, South Carolina, Ipswich, Massachusetts, Enterprise, Alabama, and I'm most thankful for this church where I'm allowed to serve as pastor. You're the most wonderful, kind, loving, beautiful people I know. I'm thankful for the Bible, God's revealed word. I've read the Bible for most of my life and still feel I'm just scratching the surface of its depth and beauty. And it's even cooler that I get paid to teach and preach and write from this book. I'm thankful, we're up to number five, for good books, for a love of reading, for men like Tim Keller, John Stock, Kent Hughes, Brian Chappell, Max Lucado, D.A. Carson, and other Christian leaders and authors who've inspired me. I walk on the shoulders of giants. Because I love books so much, I'm grateful for Amazon.com, especially for Amazon Prime. I'm thankful to live in the 21st century with technology, like my iPhone, my iPad, computers, Facebook, GPS, and other such things. I don't pine to live in some other time like the 1950s. God put me in this age at this time, and so I like it. I'm thankful for Diet Coke with lime, for mint chocolate chip ice cream, for planters peanuts, dry roasted, lightly salted, and Ruffles potato chips because you can't eat clam dip with your fingers. And for all the delightful Italian restaurants in our town. I'm thankful for good, deep, rich, wonderful friendships that stand the test of time. And I'm grateful for annoying people, trials, and character-building things that I hate, but that God sends for my sanctification. Nine, I'm thankful for Dave and Kathy, Tom and Christine, Jeff and Alicia. Ten, I'm thankful for Rick, Jed, Dave, Mike, Frank, Mark, Todd, Art, Dave, Greg, John, and John. We have great leaders here. I'm thankful for my five children and four grandsons. Each is uniquely different and yet so precious to me. And they're all amazing, beautiful gifts from God. And I am humbled to be their father and amazed to be their grandfather. And last but certainly not least, I'm thankful for Joanne, my beautiful wife of over 30 years, who enjoys watching mysteries with me. I'm amazed that anyone could put up with me for that long. And I feel that I owe a debt to these ministries, a debt to these churches, a debt to these books, a debt to these leaders, a debt to the love of friends and family that I can never repay. What do we do with those kinds of debts? There is no phrase in Scripture that so clearly portrays the value of the death of Christ and the basis of one's acceptance before God as these words uttered by the Apostle Paul as he writes to Philemon on behalf of Onesimus in verse 18. He writes, If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that. To my account. Men like Onesimus, like me, like you, have incurred a debt which cannot be paid. The debt which Onesimus owed to Philemon was, first of all, a monetary debt. He had stolen from him, and with the fruits of that theft, he had sought to forever separate himself from his master, who could call him to answer for that crime. But in that theft and in that departure, Onesimus incurred 
a second debt which he can never repay. Conceivably, it might be possible to repay the money. But this slave, according to Roman law, had put himself under a death penalty, a death sentence for running away, for abandoning his master, the one who had purchased him. This is a debt that Onesimus cannot pay. No matter how long he toiled, he could never repay the death sentence. And therefore, Onesimus is in the position before Philemon, <coughs> excuse me, the same position that men are before God. <coughs> and so when God sent his son into the world, the one who introduced him to Israel pointed at him and said in John chapter 1, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. <coughs> Your average Israelite would hear John the Baptist's statement, Behold the Lamb of God. And he would know what that meant. He would know that if this is the Lamb of God, <coughs> excuse me, I made it so far. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He can only do it by sacrificing himself as God has revealed in the Old Testament. They would recognize if this is the Lamb of God, he has come not to live, but to die. He has come in order that he might give his life as a sacrifice for sin. That's why the Apostle Paul speaks of the gospel uh, when it's preached in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. The good news of salvation, of forgiveness of sins, began with the, <clears throat> with the affirmation that one man came to pay all men's debts. If he were to pay man's debt, your debt, my debt, individuals' debts, <clears throat> can't pay a portion of it. He can't make a token payment. Has to make the pay the the full amount of the debt. <coughs> and since the debt which is owed to God, the obligation for sin, the wages of sin, is death. Jesus could not be a savior unless he offered to God the sum total of the debt. Jesus Christ had to die. And the good news of the gospel that Christ died. That means the debt has been paid. And when before time began, God set apart the Son to be the Savior, and the Savior gave himself in submission to the will of God to be the Redeemer, it was anticipated that there would be the shedding of blood, without which there could be no remission of sin. And when man's debt is paid, whether it's Onesimus' debt, or your debt, or my debt, the indebtedness and the obligation is removed. But nothing whatsoever is put by that payment on the credit side of the ledger. If you were to overdraw your bank account 
and you couldn't pay that debt. And another person in kindness came forward and went and paid that overdraft, that debt in full. At the end of the month, you get your bank statement and it would show you owe nothing, but also show you have no balance in your account. The debt's been taken care of, but there's nothing to your credit in that account. In the same way, you could rejoice that Jesus Christ paid your debt of sin and canceled the obligation, but the payment of debt would have still left you bankrupt in the sight of God. There needs to be a positive entry to your account. So there's something on the credit side. And it's this positive entry to which the apostle is referring when he says, verse 17, so if you consider me to be your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Paul says, I want you not only to reckon his indebtedness, all the negative side of the ledger, to my account. He says, charge it to my account. But I want you to put down to his credit anything that I am in your estimation. Paul is asking Philemon not only to cancel the indebtedness, but to set down to Onesimus' account all that Philemon sees in the Apostle Paul. Jesus Christ came not only to pay one's debt, that the debt side of the ledger should be wiped clean. He came in order that he might set down to one's account all the righteousness that is his before the Father. On the positive side of the account is set down the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He's not only canceled your debt, but he's given you his righteousness on the basis of your standing before God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 we read, For our sake he, God, made him Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. That takes care of the negative side. So that in him, Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. And when Paul adds that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God, he affirms that something is set down on the credit side, the positive side of the ledger. Just as Paul told Philemon, Receive Onesimus as you would receive me. Jesus is telling God the Father to receive Dave or Mark or Deb or Catherine as you would receive me. Understanding how the Father has received you is the only place you'll ever get the resources to receive others when they've sinned against you. The only way that you'll be able to forgive others when they wrong you is understanding that when you wrong the Father, when you were still his enemy, when you ran as far away from him as you could, when you robbed glory from him every chance you got because of the death of Jesus Christ, when you return in repentance, he received you. Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When you get that, when that drops from your head to your heart, and you understand that, you can't do anything but forgive people when they wrong you. And I'm not saying it becomes easy to do that, but I'm saying that when you understand how you have wronged the Father and you've been a wretch that's only sinned against Him your entire life, and you receive, yet yeah, he, he receives you through the death of His Son, then you're compelled to forgive others. You have to forgive others because you understand how much you have been forgiven. And then you'll really be grateful. And then you'll truly be thankful. At the end of this 
uh, letter, Paul names some friends, some folks that he's grateful for. And so I'm going to ask you to do something for me. I think it would be great if we could express our gratitude for what God has done in our lives by thanking those he has used in our lives. And I'm asking you to express gratitude to someone, to one person who has made a worthy investment in your life. Pick someone in your life. The first person who comes to mind is probably the right choice. Someone who's blessed you, whether they know it or not. To send a note, a letter, a card, an email, post a blog telling them thanks. And be specific in what you thank them for. Being specific is more meaningful than being profound. But if you chronicle in detail some way they've blessed your life, they will savor every word. And if possible, do it before the sun goes down tonight. Gratitude should be one of our core values. It goes hand in hand with generosity. Your words of gratitude may turn around someone's entire week, month, year. You'd be surprised. After all, there's got to be more than Thanksgiving than putting on three and a half pounds. So go be grateful today. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Let's pray together. O Lord, our Lord, this morning we give you thanks and praise that when we were still far off, you met us in your Son and brought us home. Thank you that we're not beyond your grace. Thank you the blood of Jesus covers our sins. Thank you for paying the debt we could never repay. Thank you for grace that is greater than all of our sin. Thank you for forgiveness that reconciles us to yourself. Thank you for welcoming us home with such costly love. Lord, we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.